Welcome to the Supplement Engineer Podcast. My name is Robert Chinetsky. Joining us today, founder and CEO of Caraleaf, Mr. Krishna Rajendran. Krishna, welcome for, uh, thank you for joining us today. How are you, sir? Hey, Robert. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm good. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. It's a, a nice day here. It's a little cold in Texas, but otherwise, uh, I'd rather it that than 110 degrees like it gets during the summer. So, no complaints. You're up here in Boston, it's about 40 degrees. So, it's, you know, and Did y'all get snow yet this year? Have y'all been getting a lot of snow yet or not so much? Uh, not so much, but yeah, expected to come this week. So fingers crossed. You know. Good deal. Uh, let's. Anytime I have a first time guest on the show, I like to kind of get their backstory, how they got into this this crazy world we call home that is dietary supplements. So let's walk the listeners through uh, your initial foray into the industry and, to, and what brought you to where you are now with Caraleaf. Yeah, absolutely. So the interest in this field originally started so i'm originally from india mm-hmm. and uh, so my parents started a business in india in this in the space of herbal extracts because growing up they they were very passionate about plants and they had a big backyard where they used to grow different plants and so mm-hmm. they developed an interest in that and you know they would talk to me a lot about it and so i you know as a as a young kid i grew up interested in plants and what kind of an impact they could have on their health Mm-hmm. And I also started being very healthy, being more conscious of what I ate and really being very curious about the human body and how what we put in can have such a big impact on, you know, both mental and physical health. Mm-hmm. And so as a young kid, you know, I was eight years old when my parents started the business. And so just kind of started observing business, how these plants, how these extracts are manufactured, how they impact lives. I got such an interest at such a young age. I got a really early head start. And I think what really inspired me is like the testimonials we used to receive from mm-hmm. people. Like, you know, how our products really made such a big impact in their lives. Like, you know, they, I don't know, some of these testimonials were so, they were so inspiring. They were like, wow, we could actually make such a big difference. And so it made me really curious to go deeper into this field. And you know, all throughout school, undergrad engineering, you know, I was really involved in the business. Mm-hmm. So I worked in the business for uh, for quite a while as well in India. And I always knew I wanted to be in this industry. And so, yeah, that's how I initially got started. And then I moved to the US for, for grad school. And then I set up a business over here, which is an extension of the business in India. Mm-hmm. And yeah so i'm very excited about this field excited about the impact that it has and i like it because i can actually take these products myself and i can see how it impacts me and so when it works for you you feel a lot more inspired you're like yeah you know i can make that i want to i want more people to experience this so absolutely keeps me energized yeah uh a couple of things i want to unpack there from the the initial uh foray um you're Matt, you got a master's in engineering, which field, which branch or discipline of engineering? Cause I, I come from a, a lineage of engineering nerds. So I'm a mechanical, my dad's mechanical. My grandpa was a chemical engineer. So mm-hmm. how did you, what made you want to go into get a master's in engineering and how did that benefit you within the, the supplement and the manufacturing side of things? Yeah. So my engineering was in logistics and supply chain management. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big part of my role right now, which is in because we are a global business you know we're headquartered in the u.s but we serve customers all over the world and as you know like in the last one and a half years like supply chain and logistics (laughs) that's where i was going to go next (laughs) so many disruptions everywhere right and so many of these 
supply chain issues that are there right now are things which it's interesting. I was actually learning about all these issues. What happens if there's a big bottleneck somewhere? You know, how do you kind of route this? How do you plan? How do you have risk management strategies in place? So mm -hmm. it really helped a lot in helping me kind of have that five-year plan, 10-year plan, and kind of having mitigation strategies. So really being more proactive and setting up a solid system instead of kind of being reactive, right? Just getting caught off guard and then you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do now, you know? And it's it's yeah. really, so being more proactive, it really helped me look at issues well before they could possibly occur mm -hmm. and kind of having mitigation strategies in place. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to do that, to understand the whole supply chain because because that's, it's so critical to the business. Yeah. Well, since, since we're on that topic of supply chain stuff, I guess let's really dive into that and from, from your vantage point, and since that's kind of where your expertise lies, where is like everybody for the average consumer that has no idea what goes on on the back end of the industry, all they're seeing is their favorite products are out of stock or material costs are skyrocketing. So creatine used to be dirt cheap. It's now, you know, 20, $25 a kilo. Mm -hmm. Whey protein is exorbitantly expensive. Citrulline, basic stuff that used to be fairly affordable and cheap for, for brands to use is now skyrocketed. So from your position, where are these these primary bottlenecks in the supply chain instead of just everybody hearing oh well we've got supply chain issues can we can we get a little bit more granularity and specificity on what the exact nature of the the issue and disruption is yeah so as you know we focus on herbal extracts like herbal supplements right mm -hmm. so these are plants which have to be grown so there's a lot of planning that needs to be done it's not you know, just because there's a ram, just because there's a spike in demand doesn't mean the supply can meet up because you have to plan, you know, we have to plan the raw material, how are we going to source them? So mm -hmm. we have to find a supplier who can grow enough of the raw material to kind of withstand any spikes, right? Like sudden, you know, spikes, increase in demand. And on the flip side, if there's a sudden drop in demand, they have to be able to withstand that because if we tell them that, hey, we're going to order so much and then there's a sudden drop in demand, what, what are they going to do with the excess produce, right? It just goes away. Mm -hmm. So really, it starts right from that level, from the time the plant is grown in the soil to harvesting that plant and then getting it into a manufacturing unit, making the extract and then shipping it to like a warehouse somewhere and then getting it to the customer. Mm -hmm. Like every stage, there's there's a potential bottleneck over there. So, but I think the major thing comes with like in terms of the the supply of the raw material, which raw material for us. So we buy these her dried herbs and then we make extracts out of these herbs, powdered extracts. Mm -hmm. So the biggest bottleneck is over there because all of these herbs take time. It's not like if you grow it today, it just, I mean, you know, you can harvest it tomorrow, right? It takes right. six months, nine months, whatever. And they have seasons. Yeah. And then you have, you know, like things like climate change, for example, you know, it's such a serious issue. And so it's it's like so many things to factor in. And you can't just think like one year ahead. You need to think five years ahead. Okay, what's going to happen? And a lot of this, that's why it requires like that forward thinking. And, you know, just give you like an example of the other side. Now, I spoke a lot about the supply side, growing these herbs and then getting the raw materials. And then on the shipment side of things, you know, crazy things happen. Like, I don't know if you uh, you saw that Panama, what happened with that ship getting stuck. Were you aware of that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, one got stuck and the whole, you know, industry went for a toss. It was like, wow, no, who would have thought something like this could happen? Yeah. And then 
everything gets delayed because if that gets delayed, then the product reaches the customer late, the finished product manufacturers late, and they have to sell it, send it to the retail shelves at a certain cutoff point. So mm -hmm. if they don't meet the cutoff point, they have to wait for the next, you know, six month period. So a small delay in one thing just gets, you know, crazily amplified as you go along the supply chain. So yeah. it's really about having mitigation strategies for every single step. Mm -hmm. And yeah, looking at it in a detailed way. So let's, <clears throat> I guess we can, let's do a, a, like a hypothetical situation. So ashwagandha is one of the most popular herbs in, you know, and it's, it's something that's used both in, in Ayurveda and it's exploded in popularity here stateside in terms of all the different, uh, like premium quality extracts that are available. So, you know, how, I guess, let's say there's a bad season of it that grows. How quick could the turnaround be from, you know, maybe harvest yield to where we have a, f a finalized extract. It, it just like if for that, we can, if we can just, I guess, restrict it to that one specific plant. So from the time it's grown to the time it's on the consumer, the retail shelf, like any yeah. thing. Yeah. I think it, it could take anywhere from about close to nine months, I would say. Okay. From when like it's harvested all out of the ground or, and I guess what's, do oh, you have any ideas to the, the growth cycle of how long it takes from planting the initial seed to getting uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. So that's what I meant. So like from the time it's planted to the time it's on the retail shelf, mm -hmm. it could take about nine months. So it typically takes like some months for it to grow. And then we, and I'm talking like generally, like, I mean, Ashwanda, again, it's different uh, going specific, but it would take like anywhere from three to six months for the plant to harvest. And then you get it and then you make the extract and then you, and then you ship it to the customer and then the customer takes the product, puts it into like a capsule and then they have to put it on the retail shelf. Mm -hmm. That whole process could take anywhere from nine months to about a year. So it's a pretty long process, I would say. Yeah. And so just because there's sudden demand in the consumer side doesn't mean like we can just suddenly ramp up everything and go crazy. Like, you know, mm -hmm. because ultimately the quality matters, right? Like, and that's one of the, Correct. The shocking things what I've seen in the industry is like, you know, companies, they cut corners so much. Like I've seen what our competitors do, right? So because the worst thing you can have at the, you know, they say stockouts are horrible, right? Like when a consumer wants a product, you should be able to deliver the product. Yeah, absolutely. But then what if what if the supply, you don't, you don't have enough supply of that high quality material? So what mm -hmm. companies do, they, they take like lower quality material. And then they sell it. And then that lower quality material makes it to the consumer shelf. Now, what happens is the consumer still gets the product, but it's not of the same quality. And the, the really shocking thing is there's so many entities in the supply chain and everyone passes the buck onto the next player in the supply chain. Okay, oh, you do the testing, you do the testing. I'm assuming you're gonna be doing the testing. Everyone assumes that the next person in the, in the supply chain is gonna do the testing but nobody ends up doing the testing. And so the consumer gets a product that is, the product is still safe. I'm not talking about safety, but it's just not the same genuine efficacious product. So Correct. it's just a junk product. And, and that's the thing, getting a high quality product, that's the, that's the challenge, like in terms of responding to demand. Uh, yeah, along those lines, you know, it's y'all specialize in making like premium quality extracts. So they're going to be standardized to a certain set of bioactive compounds that like that's going to be that offers like the real payload benefits of the, the, the specific botanical. 
Right. Can you, I guess, explain a little bit to the listeners? Because they'll see, they might just turn over a bottle of supplements and see generic Bacopa powder, generic rhodiola. Can you walk them through a little bit? And we, get, we don't have to get super specific if you don't want to, or if you just want to speak in broad strokes, but how do you go about making a better quality extract and just not giving them, you know, a capsule of just like raw ashwagandha root powder and it's going to be standardized to something specific. So can you walk them through that, the, the extraction process a little bit? Yeah. So if you take the example of ashwagandha itself, so in our opinion, the highest quality ashwagandha extract is made from the roots, mm -hmm. from ashwagandha roots. But what, and that's the more expensive product, but it's a more effective product and it's a higher quality product. Now, but there's a big difference between when you take ashwagandha, making the extract from the root versus making the extract from the leaves. The mm -hmm. leaves, the raw material for the leaves is like, it's much more cheaper than the root. So the product is cheaper, but it's not as effective. So in ashwagandha, for example, we standardize it to a product called withanoloids. And so we standardize it to a specific level of withanoloids. Now, why do we do that? Because it's like if you go to a grocery store, say you, I don't know, say you want to buy carrots. This is just a very crude example. But if you want to buy carrots, like the importance of standardization. Now, carrots are orange, right, in color. Now, if you go to the grocery store and you see a carrot that's yellow in color, what are you going to think? You're going to be like, oh, okay, something's wrong with this. This is not science. You see one red, one orange, one blue, something. Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, something's wrong with this. This is not standardized. The quality is not consistent. Something is off. And so we want to standardize the quality because as a consumer, you want to know you're receiving the exact amount. You should not get too much of the thing also is bad and too little is also bad. Mm -hmm. You have to stay in that sweet spot range because yeah. too much can cause toxicity. Too little has no efficacy. Exactly. So you want to stay in that speed, sweet spot. So to stay in that sweet spot, you need to standardize because only when we standardize it, so we standardize it to a bioactive called withanoloids. And so by standardizing, we are telling the con con we're telling our customer that, hey, it's standardized so you can check and verify the quality. Because mm -hmm. if you don't standardize, what do you measure? You know, what, how do you measure whether the supplier is giving you a genuine quality product or they're just giving you a junk product? Right. There's no way to test and verify. Like, I know a lot of companies in the industry, they use a thing called extract ratio. They say, we do a 10 is to 1 extract. We do a 20 is to 1 extract. Mm -hmm. Great. But how do you measure that? That's one thing I've, I've, I've gotten a lot of questions. I said sometimes that means something in uh, other in other cases it's more of like a case by case scenario other times that it, it really means nothing so i guess let's let's uh expand on that a little bit and get, explain to listeners why it might make it might mean something but in other times it, it might just be labeling yeah like typically like when we talk to our customers who are like finished product manufacturers we emphasize the importance of standardizing to a particular bioactive because that is what gives you that whatever benefit that you're seeking and being in that sweet spot range. But what other companies do, they sell like ashwagandha, for example. They say, okay, I'm going to sell a 10 is to 1 extract to you. But you as the consumer, when you see that on the bottle, what does that mean to you? Like, like 10 is to, so 10 is to 1 basically means they take 10 kilos of raw material to get 1 kilo of the extract mm -hmm. or 10 pounds of the raw material to get 1 pound of the extract. But that raw material, but that doesn't, that's more of a quanti 
quantity-focused approach as opposed to a quality-focused approach. That 10, kil that 10 pounds of raw material could be, it could be a junk raw material, it could be a genuine raw material, it could be like from the leaf, which is lower quality, which I mentioned, or it could be in the root, which is the higher quality material. And that 10, that 10 pounds could be like, you know, taken from three different branches, sourced from three different suppliers. There's no real way of like, standardizing it and say no this is the consistent quality batch after batch mm -hmm. and so the only way to get that standardized is to standardize it to an active compound because we are literally challenging these companies hey we provide genuine products and we give you a way you can verify it like like I, as a consumer i'm all about being able to verify things i don't want to just take people when they say something i'm like when I go to a retail shop, I see the bottle, it says something. I'm like, I don't know if that's genuine. <laughs> I have no clue. Yeah. Right? I'm like, is there a way I can test it? So sometimes I actually do that. When I take some supplements, when I buy it from the shop, I, I actually send a little bit of this supplement for testing in the labs. Mm -hmm. Just out of curiosity, as a consumer, I'm like, okay, I'm buying this brand as a consumer. Do they genuinely contain, does it genuinely contain what it claims? I'm like, no, I'll send it to the lab, I'll get it. I mean, 99% of consumers are not going to do that, of course. Right. Or they don't have the, the, the ability to do it, probably, too. Yeah, or just that inclination. They're like, okay, we have so many things going on in our life, whatever, we'll just take it. And right. the issue over there, I think, is, is probably down to awareness. Because when I talk to my friends or when I talk to other consumers, they assume that these products have been wetted by an independent regulatory agency. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case. Like, some, like there's no agency or body which is saying, okay, this product has been tested and proven. And so as a, as a consumer, you can take this product. We vouch for the quality. No. These products are all, um, you know, you're going on the word of the company that's making this product that, okay, that you're trusting the company as opposed to trusting an independent regulatory agency. Mm -hmm. But consumers think that there's an agency or or regulatory body that's overseeing all this testing all the products making sure it's safe so there's a disconnect that's there and you know it's unfortunate but it is what it is yeah um with trends do you have you seen like obviously there was a big focus on immune supplements over the course of the past two years for for obvious reasons but looking forward to 2022 as a, a supplier, have you started to kind of have your finger on the pulse of what trends may be uh, on the on the uprise for the coming year, a year, year two, three years down the pipeline? Yeah. So um, immunity, of course, everyone knows about, but but we believe that the next big area is going to be sleep and stress management mm -hmm. because that is that is so interlinked to immunity in the sense that if if you're more stressed and you don't sleep as well, that automatically impacts your immunity. Right. And we feel like that's going to be a big area. And that's why we are currently developing a product. We're doing a human clinical trial for a product for sleep and stress management. Because in our opinion, like a healthy immune system, you know, when the immune system gets out of whack or gets out of balance, that's where a lot of the issues come. Mm-hmm significant contributor to that imbalance is stress now and of course with like the pandemic and everything stress levels have just gone up so much and people are not able to enjoy their activities do the things that they used to do earlier and so 
stress levels are going up, they're not sleeping as much, and so that's impacting the immunity as well. So we believe that this is an area that's going to be the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Immunity is, of course, going to be much, much bigger, but as but as yeah. a related area, we think this is going to be another one. Uh, as regarding the clinical trial, is it a single ingredient that y'all are uh, testing, or is it a combination of a few ingredients? I don't know how much information you can divulge since it's still... I guess in the early stages of ramping up, but can you, I guess, explain to the listeners about how you go about getting a a clinical trial set up on the ingredient or ingredients y'all are testing and give us, I guess, as much information as you you potentially can without, you know, violating any kind of NDAs or things like that. Sure, sure. So we focus a lot of our efforts on developing blends of herbal extracts because, because most of the products in the market, if you see they're single ingredient extracts and the reason that more and more new products are coming or rather the reason there's no single standout product in the market is because because people have tried these single ingredients and they haven't worked so they're constantly looking for a better product in the market mm-hmm. whereas in other industries when you see you know there's this one blockbuster product that captures the lion's share of the market whereas in supplements they're like so many products mm-hmm. because there's no one amazing product in the market and so what we wanted to do different is rather than just developing single ingredients, we did a lot of research and development into understanding how we can bring about a natural synergy by combining different extracts. Mm-hmm. And so we studied the synergy. We did a lot of work. I mean, this takes years and years, I'm saying. So and we, so we focused on this thing called the combination herbs. So we combine different herbal extracts that are synergistically acting mm-hmm. provide an enhanced benefit to, to provide an improved efficacy. So all of the products that we're doing clinical trials on are for these blends. So which typically consists of about, you know, four to six different herbal extracts, mm-hmm. which we know are synergistically acting. And we do the initial you know, initial testing, safety, toxicology studies, all those things. And then, and then we move on to a human clinical trial. And in the human clinical trial, we do, we do, we do what is called a gold standard human clinical trial. Mm-hmm. Again, in human clinical trial, you have different kinds of clinical trials. You have at the lower end of the spectrum, you have open label studies where the, where the patient knows what they're taking the, and you know, or like, or you don't have the, you know, or, or studies where they haven't done the randomization properly. So you're not really getting like a proper sample of the population. Correct. Yeah. And other studies where they don't really compare to a placebo. So you don't know what the placebo effect is. So what we do is called a gold standard study, which is a randomized double blind placebo controlled trial. So we are both, I mean, so the, so the patient who's taking the, product doesn't know what product they're taking Mm -hmm. so it's a genuine you get to measure the actual effect of the product we're comparing against a placebo so we can actually show how whether or not our product is more effective or is just as effective as the placebo and yeah so we do these studies typically between two to four months we do about 60 to 100 patients and Basically, yeah, we measure different endpoints, and again, these endpoints are determined by our scientific team. Mm-hmm. Which, and we have a very, very, I mean, 
I, I know I'm being biased, but we have an awesome scientific team, you know, because we have we have herbal scientists, we also have naturopathic doctors or doctors of herbal medicine, but we also have medical doctors. So they bring in different perspectives and help us like put together the pieces of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So we get a product where, you know, it's been wetted by like, you know, the trial has been designed by multiple people. So we don't miss up, at least we try to make sure we don't miss out anything. And then we do the human clinical trial, we get the results, we publish a scientific paper, and then we provide this evidence to our customers. And then, yeah, they're... Do y'all do the the test? Do y'all host the test in-house? Do y'all source it out to one of the the contract research firms? Do y'all partner with the university? Um, And I guess touch on a little bit of the expense of this. Like how much does it cost in terms of ballpark figures? Because... One of the t- one of the the kickbacks you'll hear from some people say is, "Well, why isn't there more studies behind this? You know, why don't we? Why is there only cell culture studies or rat studies?" And on the one hand, I understand where they're saying it's like we want we would it, in an ideal world we would have, you know, meta analyses and systematic reviews of all the dietary supplements we could. But at the end of the day, the NIH isn't giving us millions and millions of dollars to go and conduct these studies either. Neither has the FDA. So it's it's got to come from ingredient houses or manufacturers like you guys or other supplement brands at. And then at the same time, those people are saying, well, it's an industry funded study. So that negates it. And that's not entirely true. But, you know, somebody's got to, the money's got to come from somewhere for these studies. So can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah. And that's one of the biggest, one of the biggest reasons that companies don't do these studies is it's just that it's expensive. It's expensive. And also, I would say the second thing is it requires real expertise to do this. Because mm-hmm. most of the, like, when I'm talking about, like, you know, our competitors or other companies in the industry, for the large part, they don't really have a diverse scientific team because these studies are just not easy to do. They have to be very rigorously designed and, you know, these clinical trials because Mm -hmm. there's some mistake that's there and you pay so much money and then you get a result which you can't use. That's a disaster for the company. (laughs) I mean, it can bankrupt the company in one shot like that. So... You have to do that initial research, make sure that, you know, everything is done properly. That's why I invest in that, in building a good team up front. Mm-hmm. These studies can range anywhere from about, I don't know, anywhere from about $50,000 to maybe about, you know, $250,000 or even more, depending on the complexity. Mm-hmm. And there's no guarantee. And the thing about the studies is there's no guarantee that the product will actually work well, right? It's a study. Right. right. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. So if it doesn't work, that's a big hit. But it is what it is, right? You you have to, you know, that's the true science, right? If it doesn't work, what's the point of investing more money into it? So, yeah, so it requires a combination of that initial upfront ex- expense, which you don't know if you're ever going to recoup. That's yeah. a big issue. And the second thing is just like having that scientific team, that experienced scientific team, because like we've looked at, other studies that are done by you know other companies and we can kind of see okay they've cut corners they've done like an open label study you know it's mm-hmm. how effective is that or they don't use a placebo to control the study or they don't take a randomized sample of the population they take a very you know they pick and choose who they want to recruit into the study which mm-hmm. is strict no-no and you know as per the ethics and so there are a lot of these kinds of things that they do to kind of reduce the cost. Mm-hmm. But you don't get a good, you don't get a genuine product at the end. You don't get a genuine result at the end. So what's the point? Right. 
And is this looking to something for for this specific clinical trial with the the sleep and stress aid that y'all are working on? Is this something y'all are looking to possibly patent or trademark and then kind of spin it into that way, and, or just release it as your own in-house blend of products that y'all then market to uh, other contract manufacturers? You can sell it out to them, so brands can use it in their products. How is that? What's the I guess the ultimate goal with it in that in that ballpark? Yeah. So typically, in fact, for the, all the products that have which for which we have completed the clinical trials. That's the approach we do. We do the trademark, we do the patents, mm-hmm. and then we yeah, and then we sell these ingredient blends to finished product manufacturers, consumer brands, and yeah, and then they take it forward from there because it's it's essential to have like patents to protect the product mm-hmm. because if you're making a big investment upfront to do the clinical trials and if you get good results. As you, yeah. To one of your earlier points, right? Like all of this thing could be seen as like, oh, just industry research that you're doing, like anyone could just use, right? Right. So you have to kind of protect that in some way by doing patents. Agreed. And at least not that everyone respects patents. That's a different thing. Like like we work globally in different, different right. countries. You don't have the same level of patent protection everywhere. Mm-hmm. But at least to some extent, it gives you protection. At least the bigger companies will, you know, not intentionally infringe on the patent so it gives you some protection and that's i guess also goes into the cost because sometimes you'll see that these certain branded ingredients are exorbitantly expensive compared to generics but at the same time you got to understand that's folding in the cost of the clinical trial the cost of the the patent applications all the lawyer fees that go into that plus the downtime that you've had just not being able to move other product while you're investing it's you know cost it's a time spent you just actually investing into the background research and, and all the other logistics that take to bring it to market. Um, I guess, how long is the patent process? So you get the, the ingredient figure finished, it passes, you know, for whatever standard of proof y'all have in-house for saying this will pass our thing, the, the study is a success. Right. What's the time course from the end of the study when it gets published until you file all the patents, trademarks, and then it can be marketed as that branded ingredient? Yeah, so typically the, I think the, Patent filing, it takes about like three to four months mm-hmm. or so. And we have to obviously file before the paper has been published. And so so after the studies are done, we get started work on the patents. And then that takes about three, four months. And then the paper gets published. And then we wait for the patent office. I mean, that's a big process, of course, as you probably know. Yep. For them to review the patents and give us, you know, give us the initial opinion. What do they think of the claims and things like that? Okay. How does that work, uh, I guess, in other countries? So if you patent the ingredient here in the States, how does that transfer if you go to market the ingredient in India or China or the, the EU or any of those things? Does that hold up or do you have to file separate applications in all of those other countries as well? Yeah. So typically, if you file a U.S. patent application, then you can file what is called a PCT application. Mm-hmm. Like the PCT basically consists of like a large group of uh, countries. And so when you file what is called a PCT application, it gives you one year to then go and file one year of protection while you determine which specific country you want to go and file in. Okay. So you file the US application first and then you file this PCT application. And then you still have one because you don't want to. The PCT just gives you one year of time, basically, to decide right. which specific country you want to go and file into. Because okay. I mean, you don't—it's—it's it's expensive, right? 
like filing in 30 40 countries without when you don't know the demand is, is like risky so at least it gives you that one year and then you can go and file in the individual country yeah and obviously you probably hit the major markets out there as far as dietary supplements or at least where the where you know where your ingredients are the hot zones for those ingredients more or less exactly okay I mean, it's not a perfect thing, but we kind of have to estimate, you know, there will be one or two countries where you haven't filed and then later on you see demand. Okay. You have to, you have to figure it out. Yeah. Right. Uh, going back to one of the things you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, you said just growing up, you were growing up in India and that's where it's a, a country with a very, very rich culture. Uh, and a lot of the botanicals that we find in dietary supplements way have their origins in, in the Ayurvedic and traditional medicines of India and China and that whole Southeast Asian region. So can you give the listeners a little bit of an insight into what, what it's kind of like growing up in that culture being surrounded? Like is just plant medicine, just kind of like we walk to the pharmacy and it's just something that you're just surrounded and engrossed in every day, kind of like, Oh, I have a headache. I'm going to pop ibuprofen is the way people here in the States kind of grow up doing stuff. But what's it like growing up in that kind of culture that's has a, has not only it's uh, a heavy usage on it, but it, there's a good amount of trust established and entrenched in plant medicine. Yeah, that's a very good question. Yeah. Like, I mean, thinking back to my childhood and everything. Yeah. I, I think you, we kind of right from a young age, we're kind of, I wouldn't say trained, but we're kind of used to believing in plants. Mm -hmm. Plants is, I mean, we, we eat plants every day, right? Like when we eat, and we kind of see them as just regular food. So it doesn't feel like, I guess with plants, you don't feel like, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with me. So I have to take a medicine to cure me. Like, especially as a kid, right? You don't want to take a capsule. Right. And you don't want to feel like, you're like, you're like a kid, you know, you, you, you want to believe that you're healthy. You are usually healthy. And so it's much more easier for us to take like some, just take like eat healthier or eat plants or just take plants as opposed to taking medication. Mm -hmm. And, and we kind of like, we train like that from a young age and then we kind of read some, I mean, as you mentioned Ayurveda, right? It's a rich history. And so Mm -hmm. one way or the other, I think most kids get exposed to it in one way or the other, like just that knowledge base that's there in Ayurveda and, in, in my case, my parents were both such, were so interested in that because their parents were interested. So it was like a big, like, you know, generation after generation, the interest had been passed down. Mm-hmm. And so you become curious as kids. You're like, oh, okay, what is this thing? Like, you know, the whole world seems to be focused on like synthetic medicines and chemicals and all these things. Yeah. You do need that when you're trying to, you know, for a disease or disorder, some serious, I mean, I'm not saying those are not important. Those are very important, but right. for a different thing. But if you're just trying to be healthy, if you're just trying to, you know, be healthy and live a healthier life so that you can be stronger, mm-hmm. for most of those conditions, I think it's better to kind of build a healthy system right from a young age, take plants wherever you, you know, wherever you feel like there's some kind of deficiency. Yeah. And just have a healthy body, be in balance. You know, that's the key thing. Are there any specific things that you remember consuming as a child just to kind of like boost overall health, wellness, cognitive function? Just keep any things like in particular that your parents were giving you? Specific to cognitive function? Or just in like what just in on a, like a day-to-day basis or a monthly basis where there are certain specific things that you remember your parents yeah. giving you just for, to say, hey, this is good for you. Just go ahead and take this now. You'll thank us later kind of thing. Yeah. 
uh, I remember I used to take this thing called uh, passion flower, passive, it's called passiflora extract, which is passion flower extract, mm -hmm. which is basically just for like, you know, it helps you sleep better. Because I think as growing up as kids, like the technology and everything, right? You just like stay awake late or whatever, just kind of that sleep used to be the one big thing is growing up as kids where we used to just be like, no, we don't want to sleep so much, you know, <laughs> awake, what, go out, hang out with friends, socialize or whatever. Exactly. Or, even, or even studying for exams, right? Like, I mean, late nights when you're, I don't know, studying for exams or doing other things late nights, you kind of want to, you don't want it to affect your sleep. You still want to be able to sleep better. You want to feel more relaxed. And so I think that was one thing which, uh, yeah, I used to take and which was pretty effective, I would say. Just to you know, relax, help me sleep better. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, a little earlier, you had mentioned something along uh, the lines of a consumer walks up to the bottle and, you know, there's, there's no, the FDA has regulations, but it's not every supplement is thoroughly tested and vetted to say, yes, this is safe. Yes, this will work. You know, the, the industry kind of polices itself to a certain stage until things get out of whack. And then the FDA has to come down and drop the hammer on certain ingredients and, and bans them that way. Uh, do you think that, that more regulation for the industry is better or is the set of regulations that's currently in effect sufficient and we just need more enforcement on it? Or are things just kind of good the way they are with people just saying, hey, we trust you to not, you know, screw the pooch, so to speak? Yeah, that's a good question. And I've kind of, and these are discussions which I have with my colleagues in the industry all the time. Mm -hmm. I am generally on the side that it would be nice to have more regulations. Mm -hmm. That's the side I'm more towards because I've, I've seen like in other countries how they kind of, I wouldn't say control products, but they put more restrictions on what products make it into the market. Yeah. Because I think as a consumer, you want to know that that at least there's a little bit more of, you know, somebody's checking something. It, I mean, nothing is perfect. And, you know, the FDA also has their hands full with so many other things. Like, right. we shouldn't be bashing on them either. And they're trying their best. So, but I would say a little bit more regulations would help. Mm -hmm. Maybe, like, for example, what we're doing, right? We're doing clinical trials for our products. Mm -hmm. Now, should they mandate that all products that are, made into the shelf have to go through a clinical trial you know if they mandate that how would the industry be i think if that happens so 99 percent of like products on the market don't have clinical trials on them so that would wipe out like 99 percent of the market effectively and so yeah. those brands are going to push back and obviously that's not going to fly but mm -hmm. is there some in between middle ground that we could find where we have a little bit more regulation a little bit more oversight i think so I think so. I think we we need to because I think we owe it to the consumer. I think as a consumer, mm -hmm. I mean, we don't ever claim we're making absolutely perfect products, but we want to show that at least we're trying. And I yeah. think, yeah, there has to be maybe something. something like a every product needs an independent third party lab test. Like I know several brands do that, and it's exorbitantly expensive to do that. And so to do that for every product batch, for every product, and do that over the year, that's going to add. You know, your your typical thirty dollars supplement may end up costing forty five dollars. You know, are people going to be willing to pay for that? But at the same time, you're getting that added layer of kind of just you feel good knowing that your stuff's been tested, it's clean, it's going to contain at least what it's supposed to. Whether it's actually going to have benefit or not, 
that's right. a separate conversation, but it's actually going to be clean. It's not spiked with anything or just, you know, packed with chalk and sawdust and all this other stuff. So I've always wondered if that, if that's something, and I understand that's going to throw a lot of people out of the game and, you know, bankrupt some brands or significantly reduce yeah. their product offerings or, you know, exorbitantly increase the costs of it. But that's, yeah, that could be a, a middle ground possibly. It's just a, where, or do you, is it, should it be the wild west as it kind of is now? It's, it's something that I always kind of go back and forth with in my head. It's tough, yeah. And like to my colleagues on the other side of the debate, right? They're more like if they introduce more regulations, the cost is going to go up. So if you increase the cost, these brands are obviously going to pass on to the cost of the consumer. Mm-hmm. And so when you increase the cost in the consumer, it makes it less affordable. So you're cutting off like access to these normal products for so many people. Like, you know, so I don't know, one angle which could be interesting is maybe getting like I don't know, insurance to cover some amount of these supplements mm-hmm. or at least more critical supplements, something like that if they come in where we can maintain the quality but then at least some of that cost is borne by the insurance. That could be something in the middle ground. Right. Because we don't want to cut off access, make it so expensive that, you know, like, I don't know, only 10% of the people can afford it. That's not the aim, right? You want everyone to be healthy. So... Where do we find the middle ground? That's the challenge. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. It's going to be interesting to see uh, what's going to happen going forward because we've seen certain ingredients and certain claims, like the, the the structure and function claims. FDA has really been cracking down on that with respect to certain ingredients, is particularly around immune support over the past couple of years. And before that, it was weight loss claims, and it seems there's seems to be more weight loss claims coming back on it now. And it's just it's a very the very very fine line that you can walk in and just. It's, it's something that that's another thing that I, I kind of struggle with because it's just if I'm working on a, some product copy for a brand, you've got to be very, very you have to tap dance in the way you kind of write things. So, so even if I have a scientific study showing that 500 milligrams of X, Y and Z ingredient has been shown to reduce cortisol and stress markers and improve sleep, you can't say X, Y, Z. You have to say may support uh, stress relief and all these other kinds of things have saying relieve stress because then they're going to say, well, that's a medical claim. You, this is a drug. And that's, it, that's, that's kind of where I have an issue with the way the FDA kind of enforces things that I've got this scientific study right here. That's giving me evidence of this. And so why, why do I have to be so delicate with my language here? Or otherwise you're going to come and, you know, raid the facility and do all these other things. And so it's, it's a very, very, uh, delicate situation, say the least. It's very complicated and, you know, there's some companies which, and typically in this industry, everyone just goes with the structure function claims. Mm-hmm. There's some companies which try to file what is called qualified health claims, which is a separate thing. Mm-hmm. With qualified health claims, you can make more bold statements, but also the burden of proof is just so much higher. You would have to do so many studies that the cost again just goes way too high. And... Mm-hmm. And then nobody's, it's not going to be affordable for anyone to buy. So what's the point, right? Yeah. In in wrapping things up here, Krishna, uh, can you give us a little bit of insight into, I guess, what your personal uh, supplement regimen looks like? For somebody that's so engrossed and entrenched in the industry, what's your uh, personal daily usage look like? Yeah. <laughs> so I, it, it kind of varies depending on the requirement, I would say. So right mm-hmm. now I take two supplements a day. One supplement is for immune health. I take this uh, elderberry extract, basically. Mm-hmm. 
and that's just for immune support. And then we, I'm actually trying out the one of the pro, and the second product is for sleep and stress management because I think. So basically, as I mentioned to you, right, we work with clients from all over the world. So kind of on a personal level, my my work schedule is just all over the place. Sometimes I'm up having calls at like two a.m. in the night, or <laughs> or waking up at six a.m. for a new call. It's just all over yeah. the place, right? So, so so in fact, like the product which we've designed for sleep and stress management, I'm actually testing the product out on myself right now. Mm-hmm. You know, which is going to go into a clinical trial. So I'm trying that out myself, which. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's it's working really well, and that's why I'm so excited to do the you know do the clinical trial on that as well. Yeah, um, I was looking through the ingredient offerings on the Caraleaf website. Uh, can you? It says custom and combination formula. So y'all have a joint formula, a liver health formula, and a heart health formula that y'all offer right now. Right. Can you uh, touch a little bit on any of the ingredients that are in? maybe the joint health formula or the liver formula, or is that something that uh, brands would need to contact you specifically about to get more information on them? Oh, no, no, that's publicly available. Yeah. So okay. we've actually filed for patents on both. So, um, so yeah, so basically, for example, the joint product, now the joint product is again, it's a product that it's, we did like a four month clinical study, 120 patients. And so we studied different endpoints. And one of the reasons, like if you actually go to the website, easyclimb.com, that's the dedicated website for joint health. And so basically what this product does is that it, I mean, why did we develop this product first and foremost? Because in the joint health space, there is a lot of, uh, like consumers, for example, right? They take a lot of these glucosamine, chondritin, MSM supplements. Mm-hmm. And what's the issue? And we, when we did the consumer research, what we found is that a lot of people had to take like large doses of these products to experience some benefit. Right. They had to take these horse capsules, which are very difficult to swallow. Especially for older people, it's more difficult for them to swallow these pills. And so what happened is they did not want to take this product. And so, you know, they were not taking these products regularly. And so they weren't really seeing much of a benefit. And also the another issue with glucosamine is it's typically extracted from prawn shells. Mm-hmm. So if you have someone who's vegan or someone who has a shellfish allergy, it's not a, it's a product that they cannot take. So it cuts off a significant portion of the market. And so we wanted to develop a product that's all natural, all plant-based, and something which could just be taken in a, you know, in a, in a regular sized capsule supplement. Mm-hmm. And that could help people. And so we, we designed this product. This product has been in development for about eight years. We did one clinical trial and then we did a second clinical trial. This, this product has a lot of other safety toxicology results, uh, you know, studies also behind it. So it's safe, it's effective. And it's a product that has a lot of this you know, which I mentioned earlier about synergy. Mm-hmm. The extracts that we've chosen are st- extracts that we've studied over a long period of time and we've shown that there's synergy. And the results of the clinical study show the benefits. Yeah, I'd like to dig through the, uh, I mean, y'all have, y'all list the, the full study there. So I'm, right. I, I'm, I'm very curious. I'd like to go deep dive in it, but I mean, the, the ingredients that y'all have included and in some of them, I mean, you, you're pretty well known to people that have focused in on joint health or turmeric, 
a great anti-inflammatory ingredient. Boswellia has got the things that inhibit five locks, um, enzymes in the body that can cause inflammation and irritation of the joints. Uh, some of these other ones are some interesting finds, the, the cardiospernum yep. and the vitex nagundo. I have yep. not seen those before, so those are kind of cool. Those are actually uh, commonly taken a lot in India. Mm -hmm. Again, that's bringing that knowledge which is there from there and kind of seeing what is already there and finding that synergies. That's the main idea. And I can send you this paper. There's actually a pretty interesting paper. That... Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see that one and the uh, the liver support one too. Those are these are some uh, yeah. very cool things. Those like pre workouts and protein powders get a lot of focus in the sports nutrition field, but it's some of these kind of like unsung heroes of the general health and wellness supplements that I find really interesting. You can do some really cool stuff with all of the different botanicals that are available in that region. So that's, uh, yeah, I'd like to speak to you offline more. I know you have to get going in a little bit, but I'd like to speak to you more offline and we can uh, go through some of those ingredients if possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to touch on that we didn't get to, to touch on yet? Um, I think we covered most of it. I would say like, uh, you know, as I mentioned in, in our approach of how we work with brands. So if there's, you know, if, there, if there's anyone interested in developing their own line of supplements or if there's a company out there that wants to work with like a trusted partner, a trusted scientific partner to develop these customized blends. That's definitely something that we would be interested in partnering with, with them. So, yeah. Um, and then I know y'all work on the actual supplying the raw materials. Y'all also offer contract manufacturing for people that want to release a, a private label brand. Is that a service y'all offer as well or just supplying the ingredients at this time? No, just supplying the ingredients. So we manufacture these ingredients and supply them. So, and these are our proprietary ingredients. So we're all about like, you know, selling the products that we have developed. Mm -hmm. So, because we, that's our main area of expertise in developing these products. So. Okay, great. And best way for people to contact you for the brands, because we have brand owners that also listen to the podcast, not just consumers. Uh, what's the best way for them to reach out to you guys? Yeah, so they can visit our website, www.caroleaf.com, or they can send an email to us at sales at caroleaf.com. And, and we always, and Caroleaf is spelled with a K-A-R-A-L-L-I-E-F. In case that you have listeners also, I know. So Yeah, and I'll include links to everything in the show notes as well. Perfect. And yeah, and we're very flexible in our approach. So if you have an interesting idea, you want to brainstorm, even if you just want to brainstorm some interesting ideas, we're definitely open because you just never know. Something starts off in a small conversation and it develops into something big. So yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Krishna. This was a very uh, informative and uh, enjoyable podcast. So thank you and uh, stay warm up in Boston. Thank you, Robert. It was fun talking to you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.